I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part nine in our series, Exodus. After God had rescued Israel from slavery, after God had led them and provided for them in the desert, Moses yet worried that if God's presence did not go with them, all was lost. I'm going to read before we begin from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, beginning In verse 12, Moses said to Yahweh, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Yahweh replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, and listen to this, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. These words are inspired by God. Beloved author and theologian C.S. Lewis famously described hell in both his fiction and nonfiction as the absence of God's presence. And that idea doesn't come from nowhere. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In Dante's Divine Comedy, Virgil, who's Dante's guide uh, in his tour of hell, uh, well, purgatory hell and then paradise, He leads Dante to the entrance of hell, where they read the inscription, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. If God's presence has been forfeited, all is lost. Abandon all hope. And there's a haunting glimpse of that same idea in the passage that we just read from Exodus. At a point in the story, when God has heard the cries of the oppressed in Egypt. He sought out and found the broken man, Moses, and then utilized him, even in his brokenness, to liberate his people from bondage. God has provided for his people in the wilderness. He's laid out for them an entirely new way of life that will do more than simply get them out of slavery. It will get the slavery out of them. And after all that, Moses, in a moment of visceral honesty, stands before God himself and says, if your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. If you don't come with us, then all this has been for nothing. He says, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Now, for weeks now, we've been talking about the way that Exodus, in many ways, isn't just a story in the Bible. It is the Bible's story in a portrait. 
about a blessing and then an evil oppressor that rises up to destroy that blessing and the lengths to which God will go to rescue his beloved from the tyranny of evil. And this story is, in many ways, our story. It's the story, really, a story about a realization that even after freedom and provision and newness of life, if God does not go with us, all is lost. But the question is, how does God go with us? We're not in the wilderness with, you know, the ark and the tabernacle and all that stuff, if you haven't noticed. So how does God demonstrate that he's with us, that he's pleased with us, in the words of Moses, and that he has set us apart for his purposes, which is another way of saying made holy. So tonight we're going to start in Exodus and then move across the scriptures in our church's ongoing study of the second scroll of the Hebrew scriptures, but also in our ongoing journey to seek someone called the Holy Spirit. We like this working definition of the Holy Spirit coined by scholar Gordon Fee, God's empowering presence. Or put another way, the Spirit is God's person, God's power, and God's presence. So first, the Holy Spirit is God's person. And yet, lots of people who follow Jesus, when they think about the Holy Spirit, they imagine the Spirit as like an abstract force. But for Jesus and the authors of Scripture, the Spirit is not a concept, not a symbol, not a force, but the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is also God's power. Jesus was able to perform all kinds of miracles. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast out demons. Not because he was God, per se, I mean, he was, but he performed miracles because he was empowered by the Holy Friends and new apprentices who never actually met Jesus before, but came to follow, cast out demons, and so on. Because Jesus was the prototype for all his followers, empowered by the same Spirit to do the same kinds of things, even though we, unlike Jesus, are not God. So the Spirit is God's person, God's power, but also God's presence. The Spirit is God in and with us. Now, with that, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, we're going to take a brief, brief flashback from where we just read in 33. Lots of work to do tonight. We're going to flip around a lot, but you'll, you'll survive. You guys all right? You awake? Great, thank you. Now, a lot of people think about the Bible as this ancient scrapbook of kind of cobbled together rules and weird history, but the Bible is actually, as you know well enough, a story. One story. And that story begins and ends with a picture of God with his people. If you know the opening sequence in Genesis, there's Adam and Eve, the garden, all that. And we read in it that God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, to be honest, but whatever it means in the specific sense, everyone agrees that the author of Genesis means to depict a world in which there is no barrier between God and humans. He is with them. He walks in the garden with them. Then, much later, at the conclusion of the Bible story, the climax of the Apocalypse of John or the Revelation, we read this amazing, beautiful glimpse into a world made new, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The Bible begins and ends depicting God with his people. But between the beginning and the end, you have the middle. There's a big, long middle, and we're still in the dang thing, technically. 
Uh, and the idea of God being with his people doesn't work like it did in the garden or like it will at the end at the renewal of all things. If you know the story, things have gone terribly awry. In the garden story, when faced with the decision between God in charge or themselves in charge, humanity chooses themselves and thus they are put out of God's presence, at least in a certain sense, which is a bizarre concept because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. There's nowhere that God is not. But what it means, at least in the story for Adam and Eve, to be shut out of God's presence is that there has been a compromise in their experience of God's nearness. In theology, we call this God's manifest presence, when the heaviness of God, the closeness of God is palpable and you you can actually feel it. Many of you know that sensation well enough. But post-Genesis 3, after the fall, the talking snake and the fruit and the sin and rebel, all that, God's manifest presence, when God's presence is palpable and near and you can feel it, his undeniable closeness, now that is, unfortunately, the exception to the rule. We do not experience God's palpable nearness all the time. We experience it sometimes. And hopefully, the more that you follow Jesus and mature in your discipleship to Jesus, that gap begins to close over time. But even then, we don't just go around experiencing God's palpable manifest presence every second of every day. We are born, actually, at a distance from God, and His felt closeness is not our default experience. We have to work at that, practice that, learn that. Now, all that reads as a huge bummer. But the good news is that really the entire story of the Bible is a story about the lengths to which God will go to repair that breach and to restore the normalcy of his manifest presence. The Bible is a story about a God who designs an order in which he might be with us, his beloved people, that is. But in the story, God's love is unrequited. We don't want God. Well, we do and we don't. We're like toddlers. We want God when it works for us, but we don't when we don't. And we have no idea of the implications of either thing. And then we despair without God, but then we thrash against his arms when he holds us and we make an awful mess of everything. And then we look up at God and shout, where were you? Save us. It's really the story of the Bible in a nutshell and and the story of us in a nutshell. And when God intervenes and comes near to us to rescue us, we tend to scream and say, no, and then run away as fast as we can. But if we are kind of the belligerent toddlers in the story, God is the patient, ever patient, benevolent Father who stops at nothing to rescue us and to love us and to restore a world in which he is truly with his beloved. That matters to God. And it was his idea in the beginning and his purpose for us from the beginning on. Now, let me show you. We're going to take a quick tour through scriptures, stopping at a few major landmarks. Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, the exile, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the church, and then the human body. So, let's start with Exodus 19. Look alive, people. Let's read beginning with verse 9. Yahweh said to Moses, I am going to Come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking and you will always and they will always put their trust in you. Then skip down to verse 16. Things are about to get really weird. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. 
Everyone in the camp trembled, so it was apparently terrifying. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Yahweh descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. And then the story goes on. In it, God comes to Israel in true spectacle. He doesn't have to do that, by the way. God can appear to us any way he wants, but he chooses the smoke and the thunder and lightning, a, a trumpet apparently, and an earthquake. It's incredible, and it's terrifying. In fact, in the story, Israel won't even go up there. Moses has to do the thing by himself. Then, turn just a few pages to the right, to Exodus 25. Not long after the story of Mount Sinai, we read about something called the tabernacle. Look at Exodus 25, verse 8. Then, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, or that's another way of saying the word tent, actually, and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, I realize that seems like a weird excerpt to zero in on, but this is actually a huge deal in context. In the ancient world, gods were understood to be spatially located. So there was like a god of a certain mountain or a god of the sea, you know, Poseidon's in there or whatever, or, or the god of the forest. And into that worldview is the book, the book of Exodus is written, in which Yahweh, the, the true creator god over all other gods and beings, is not relegated to one mountain or one river. He's the God over all things. But what this very big God wants to do is to go with his people as they wander. He wants to go where they go, in a tabernacle or a tent. Apparently, God wants to go camping with Israel. Wherever they go, he wants to be with them. And so from here on, Exodus becomes this detailed instruction manual for how to build this tent that Yahweh will inhabit. Really fascinating stuff. It showcases Yahweh's concern for artistry, God's aesthetic, his value for creative craftsmanship. We talked about all that last week. Really important, beautiful stuff. If you missed it, go back and catch up on the podcast. Now, turn over to Exodus 40. Let's uh, break the rules and read a bit from Exodus's conclusion before we're actually there. So spoilers for Exodus. Skip down to Exodus meeting. So it's no longer on the mountain. Now the cloud is down in the camp with Israel. God's beauty, it filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the temple. Now, fast forward a few hundred years to 1 Kings. Israel is now, at this point in the story, long out of the desert. They're live, living in Canaan, where the capital city is Jerusalem. And now here, in 1 Kings 8, there's a new kind of tabernacle. It's no longer a tent. Now it's something called the temple, and it stays in one place. It's a holy building, a holy structure, incredible story. Israel's no longer wandering around. They have a home. They have a place. There's the holy city, and now the temple. Let's read 1 Kings 8, beginning with verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of Yahweh. So again, with the cloud. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled his temple. And then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. 
God's presence was on the mountaintop, and then it came down into the tent or the tabernacle, and it traveled around with Israel until they got to their home, Jerusalem, and then it filled up the temple. Now, at this point in Israel's story, big ceremony, opening the temple, Yahweh's glory inhabits it. It's a heck of a ribbon-cutting ceremony, amazing stuff. And thing is, as amazing as all of that was, the glory or the presence of God was really only available to a select few. And the language in the scriptures is like, oh, God's dwelling place is among his people. And that's true in a certain sense. But really, only one male could enter the area called the Holy of Holies in the temple. And even then, he could only do it once a year on a day called Yom Kippur. But even so, this was a celebratory landmark in Israel's history. God's presence enters the temple. Even if it's restricted, it's still a beautiful thing. Um, the presence of God is there. We just all can't get at it. One guy can once a year. But hey, it's there. It's in the temple, and that's something. And even that doesn't last. Israel, if you know the story, rebels again against Yahweh. They consistently worship other gods. And then after centuries of patience, Yahweh allows Israel's sin to compound on itself. And they're eventually invaded by Babylon and sent out of their home, out of the city, and into exile. And then, even then, the, the temple is eventually destroyed. So that's where we're going next. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 10. You'll be all right. There, there I was waiting to hear the papers. There they go. Ezekiel chapter 10, no shame whatsoever in the table of contents. Ezekiel 10 is now a few hundred years after that last story about God's presence coming into the temple. Israel is long gone from their home. Jerusalem is a wasteland. And then we read this in verse 18. Then the glory of Yahweh departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of Yahweh's house, and the glory of God of, of the God of Israel was above them. Now, that's a lot of weird stuff, but notice this. Each story we read in route to this story was about Yahweh's presence entering or arriving or descending onto something, coming down onto the mountain, filling up the tabernacle, filling up the temple. But this is a story about God's presence doing what? Leaving, yeah, departing, leaving. It's a haunting scene. And from this point in the story on, God's presence is gone. It's not in the temple, obviously. We just read that it left. And it's not in Jerusalem at all. It's not up the mountain. It's not in the tent. It's gone. Now, turn a few pages into Ezekiel to chapter 37. In the story, God's presence leaves the temple, time marches on, and Ezekiel and the other prophets of Israel begin to look forward to a day in the future when they believed and hoped against hope that God's presence, his spirit, would come back. And this particular passage, Ezekiel 37, one of my favorites, is the prophet's vision of a dry valley littered with sun-bleached skeletons. It's a metaphor for the desolation of Israel. As we read in Ezekiel 37, verse 11, he said to me, son of man, here this is God referring to the prophet as a human being or a son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we're cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this 
is what the sovereign Yahweh says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Remember, they're in exile. They've been driven out by Babylon. The temple's destroyed. Hope is lost. The spirit's gone. Then you, my people, will know that I am Yahweh. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put, listen, my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land, and then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. Skip down to verse 27. My dwelling place will be what? With them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, Yahweh, make Israel holy or, or unique, set apart, dedicated to God when my sanctuary is among them forever. In this vivid picture, the, the prophet learns not only that Israel will one day return to the land from which they've been exiled, but better than that, one day the presence of God himself will return to Israel, but there's more. When God returns to Israel, he is going to put his spirit or his, his presence in his people. At this point in the story, this is absolutely unheard of. God's spirit, the one that hovered over the waters in creation, it, it showed up like on a noteworthy king or over a unique prophet from time to time. But that was rare and unique and usually only for a specific work and then it would go again. Maybe the spirit, God's presence, would come down in a cloud, on the mountain, in the Holy of Holies, sure. But here, Ezekiel, the prophet, sees a day in the future when God's Spirit would be in his people, all of them. Which brings us to the New Testament. Turn to John chapter 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the New Testament. Are you guys still with me? Yeah, uh, Vineyard's doing a different thing with the, the lighting here. We're at the mercy of their lighting controls, Garrett. Thanks for holding down the fort up there. So right now I'm just looking out at a bunch of shadows. I don't know who's here tonight, uh, but thank you. Thank you for staying with me. Uh, between the exile, which is where we last read, and then Jesus of Nazareth, where we're about to read, you got about 400 years or so, so a decent stretch of time. In that stretch, the temple was destroyed and then rebuilt, but there is still zero indication that God's presence has come back to the temple. So it's still a somber picture. The Jewish people are back in the land, back in their homeland, and the temple's been rebuilt, but they're still under the oppression of Rome. The temple is still void of God's presence. He's not there. Thus, the people of Israel are still waiting for Ezekiel's vision to come to fulfillment. The prophet said God's Spirit's going to come back. It's going to come into his people. And, and parts of that vision have come true. They're back in the land and the, the temple's there, but God's presence is not. Until it is. But not the way anyone was expecting. Let's read John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling in Greek literally means tabernacle. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And verse 14, guns of God, the glory of the one and only Son, who comes of Nazareth, he is evoking that same imagery from Exodus. The glory of God, and glory, the thunder and lightning and trump, all that stuff, now it's in, almost done. Turn one book to the right to Acts chapter 2. We're now just 
a few weeks after Jesus has died, been buried, and then resurrected back to life, Jesus has returned to the Father, ascended into heaven, and a relatively small group of his followers are now in Jerusalem waiting for something that Jesus said would happen. Then we read this in Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, all of Jesus' disciples. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. There's that language again. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Again, that imagery from Exodus, the presence filling up the place. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, not relegated to a mountain or a tent or a temple or not even relegated to just one man, Jesus of Nazareth. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time in the history of the cosmos. And because of that, everything in the story changes. Now, before we stop, let me show you one more thing. This is it, I promise. Turn one more time couple of books to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is where we'll stop with all the training. You guys have done a great job. I hear the papers of at least a few of you, and I'm very proud of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is several years after that story in Acts. The movement of Jesus is now spread out through the ancient Mediterranean, and then one apprentice of Jesus called Paul, who, you know, writes most of the New Testament, he sends a letter to a new church of Jesus followers in a city called Corinth. And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know, Paul says to these followers of Jesus, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So the temple, this holy space where God's presence it occupies and fills the temple, it's still a thing. His spirit, the temple, it lives on. But now the temple is all followers of Jesus, you and me. And, and I know for many of us that whole, like, my body is a temple language is familiar enough. It's kind of passed on to pop culture. But hopefully, with all that context, you can now see the magnitude of that idea that the wild, powerful, thunder and lightning, fire on the mountain presence of God that was once localized on Sinai and then in a tabernacle, a temple in Jesus himself is now in us. In us, plural, not just me, not just you. Paul's language is you together are that temple, the church, this now, you've probably heard uh, popular expressions about like the church is, is a people, not a building. And that's true. It is a people, not a building. But where those expressions can be, I think, sometimes misleading is that they are often used to beat up on what we're doing right now. Uh, the whole like, you know, hey, man, I don't need to come to a church because the church is a people, not a building, man. I don't know why they talk like that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my walk in the woods is church or, you know, like my hamburger is church or whatever. The problem is that for more than 2,000 years all over the world, disciples of Jesus have come together in regular rhythms of gathering 
to worship and study and eat and drink and take communion. And Paul's language is plural. Again, you together are that temple. Something unique, something special happens when we get together like this. Not just spontaneously, not just when we feel like it, but dedicated rhythms to sacraments of the bread and the cup and baptism and worship and the studying of scriptures. All that has been a part of what it means for the community of God to meet together routinely since the very beginning. And when we do this, even though it may not always seem this way, when we do this, whenever we do this, we become a collected vessel of God's indwelling presence. But it's not true of the church only. Later in, in the same letter, Paul has to correct this church in Corinth for all kinds of sexual immorality. Go read it on your own. Really wild stuff in Corinth. And listen to the logic that he employs to explain himself on why sexual immorality is inappropriate for a disciple of Jesus. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The you there is singular. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning you are the place where God is. Or at least you can be. The story of the Bible unfolds this way. God is with his people in intimate closeness. We sabotage that intimacy and we're put out of God's presence by our own rebellion. God refuses to let the story end that way. His presence comes to his people on Sinai and then even closer in the tabernacle and then in the temple, but the presence is always restricted. And humanity remains desperate to force God away, and unfaithful people worshiping other gods, refusing God's love. So God's presence leaves the temple. But remember, this is a story about God's relentless pursuit of his beloved, so God's presence comes back, this time in Jesus of Nazareth. And because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Spirit finally, after millennia of waiting, arrives, this time in each and every one of us. And that's still not the end of the story. The end of the story is on a coming day at what we call the renewal of all things when God's intimate, undeniable presence is once again over every square inch of the entire cosmos when he is truly with his people in the complete, undeniable, uninhibited sense as he was in the beginning and he will be forever. Amen. That is the story of the Bible. Okay, you guys all right? Great, thank you. Now, we talk quite a bit at church, at this church, about Jesus being with us. If you've been around church circles for more than a minute or two, you've probably noticed that people who follow Jesus, we believe that God is neither distant nor aloof. We believe that God is with us. That's one of his names, actually, Emmanuel, God with us. One of the last things that Jesus said before he returned to the Father was, I am with you, what? Always. But how? And technically, how? He's not here physically, clearly, and he's not here symbolically. You know, we believe it's more than a symbol. You can't be in relationship with a symbol. It's not like the end of E.T., I'll be right here, and no, you won't. He flies away, you know. Uh, spoilers for E.T., sorry. <laughs> Majors, man. 
have to cut that. Patrick, make a note to cut that out of the podcast. I sinned against God and my people. Sorry. So how, anyway, how's that reality, the promise of Jesus that's so precious to his followers down throughout church history that he will be with us always? How's that true? The answer is and has always been through the Holy Spirit, which is God's empowering presence. That thing that it's now here with us to be with his beloved. That's you, by the way. Though Jesus is, as he promised, with us always, all this, God's Spirit, which is the way that he is with us, person, not a fat in it. And by that, I don't mean like a human man. I just mean that he's a person, not a force. And that matters because you can be in relationship with a person. You can't be in a relationship with an abstract concept or a symbol or a force. The scriptures speak of one uh, uh, being in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, who was in the power of the Holy Spirit. How did Jesus perform miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, all that crazy stuff? Not by being God, he was and is, but that's not how he did all that. How do we know? Because as the story carries on, like I said earlier, his followers continue to do all the same things without benefit of being God. Now, maybe the power to do miracles seems to you like far-fetched and impractical, and that's fine, but this is more about more than miracles or magic tricks. It's about God's empowering presence, his manifest presence, his felt nearness at work or, or in and through you as you raise kids or, or relate to people or find your way in the chaos of life in the world. If the power that was in Jesus to cast out demons and to restore sight to the blind is alive in me, then I would very much like to access it just to be a better dad or a husband or a friend or an artist or on down the list. But since the Spirit is a person, not a force, we don't access the presence of God or the power of the Spirit by channeling energy through some kind of abstract force. We're not Jedi or Sith. That's not how this works. We access the power and presence of the Spirit through relationship with Him. In other words, by being with the Spirit of Jesus, we have access to the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's out of this withness that we do the things the Spirit does. All the things the Spirit does, prophecy and healing and worship and even the crazy things like tongues, flow from our being with Him. The more intimacy with God, the more the work of the Spirit can flow in and through you. How do you have intimacy with God? Through the Holy Spirit. Now, there are moments in time when being with God seems easier than others. Maybe during a, a particular stirring session of worship for some people, or maybe during quiet meditative prayer for other people. That's when it, you find it easiest to actually focus in and be present to God's presence. Maybe in moments of profound joy, celebrating with friends or the birth of your children, you know, these kind of cosmic, life-changing moments. Um, I have found personally, I know a lot of you have as well, that moments of intense suffering or seasons of intense suffering can bring us near to God in a unique, profound way. The problem is that those times tend to make up the minority of our everyday lives. And I don't want the power of God made manifest in my life held hostage by whether or not worship was awesome to me 
or if my week was particularly spiritual feeling or joyful or whether or not I'm suffering. I want the power of the Spirit when I'm working at my desk or in conversations with my family over dinner or watching a movie with my friends. I want God's closeness in all of my life. And I know I'm not alone in that. That's why Dallas Willard wrote, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. Which I admit is much easier said than done, but it's not impossible. If you want the person and power of God's Spirit, if you want to feel His closeness and nearness, you need to pursue His presence. Alternately, to practice rhythms of lifestyle and modes of thinking that distance us from the Spirit is to retreat from God's presence and from His power and from hope. I really cannot tell you how many times that um, men and women that I've sat with or, or how many letters I've received from those languishing in the long corridors of doubt and disillusionment, sad and discouraged by the loneliness and dissonance of unbelief, and they'll describe to me the ways that they're pumping into their hearts and minds things that fan the flames of unbelief while withdrawing from the things of God altogether. So they spend a tremendous amount of time on social media or reading and listening to those set against the ways of Jesus in the purported effort to keep an open mind and to learn new things and to entertain new ideas. But the Spirit of God has given no voice and no space. And if you tell me just exploring ideas by combing social media and listening to podcasts that beat up on Christianity, but spending no time in prayer or worship or community or contemplation, it doesn't take a psychologist to deduce why one power reigns over your heart and mind while the other withers and fades. Dallas Willard said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. We believe things to be true, and then we live a certain way as a result. And we do this subconsciously, whether we want to or not. When what we believe about God and relationships or sexuality or ambition or creativity, when those things are true, then we live in accordance with the truth. And the truth, as Jesus said, will set us free. But when what we believe about God or relationships or sexuality or ambition or money or the world are not true, then we live lies. And, and we open not just our minds, but our bodies and the world around us to the poison of things that are not true. Now, as an extreme example, think about the way that the brutality of mental illness like schizophrenia can imprison someone in the agony of unreality. But all of us can, and often do, believe things that do not correspond with reality. Lies, in other words. Our minds, like our bodies, like our hearts, can suffer the effects of a broken world marred by sin and evil and death. But the mind, for us, is the last frontier, frontier of our an, uh, autonomy. We don't like to think of ourselves as easily influenced or, or easily deceived, because that would make us feel dumb, uh, or make us feel as if our valid perspectives might actually be naive or ill-informed. But the truth is that even our minds are subject to brokenness. And even the wisest among us can be deceived. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that anything you ever think or believe is a wash. It just means that if our bodies and our hearts can be subject to sin and deceit, 
Our minds can too, and all of them need saving. Now, we know this already. We know that incredibly intelligent people can be guilty of horrific evil. We know that very smart, very educated people can believe terrible things that result in all kinds of suffering and injustice. Now, the easy, and I would argue lazy, way of confronting that paradox is to accuse evil people of just being stupid. That's the popular kind of social media vitriol approach. These people who, be, who believe these terrible things, who do these terrible things, they're just idiots. Clearly, they know nothing. They're stupid. They're scum. We know better. We're smarter. We're better. All that. And we like this because it makes us feel smart. We're not like them, therefore superior, therefore more intelligent. Because if even the very intelligent are not immune to lies, then what does that mean for us? We don't like to think of ourselves as stupid. If even we can be deceived, that's an uncomfortable place to be. Now, that means, and please, please listen to me on this, we need someone to tell us the truth, to teach us what is true and what is a lie. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The lies that we have been led to believe with the truth of our teaching and rule of the mind. Once again, because I'm going for the trifecta here, Dallas Willard put it like those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus, that we should be scared of different ideas or that we should be closed-minded or unthinking, absolutely not. But I am trying to follow Jesus. I want to absolutely fill my heart and mind with the things of the Spirit over and against all other ideas and agendas so that I can learn to understand the world and life itself as Jesus understands it with my mind wide open, unafraid of the world, forever steadfast in the truth because I am spending most of my time, most of my mental energy and spiritual real estate in and on the things of the Spirit, not on other things, so that I can accept other things in the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Well, these are the most basic ancient practices. The first is just to begin the day with God. As predictable and as ordinary as that sounds, there's a reason Jesus was big on the whole prayer in the morning thing. I have conducted my life in ongoing stretches both with and without spending my mornings with God. And for me personally, the difference between the two is uh, indisputable. I have my time after I wake up, have breakfast with the kids and coffee and Abby. I I drop the kids off at school, I head to my office with more coffee, and then I sit down, shut the door, and I take a deep breath, and I say, good morning to the Spirit of God, I wait and listen, I write down what I think that God is saying in my journal, I, I spend time reading the scriptures and meditating on the uh, Hebrew poetry, and, and then I ask God what he's saying through that, and, you know, and then I just continue in other disciplines depending on the day and the season and what God is asking me to do. Now, the thing about a morning routine is that mine personally evolves with your seasons of life. There was a time when it worked uh, best for me and most beautifully for me to have spent a lot of time way before anyone else in my family got up. But then we had this other kid, and he's being a little jerk right now. It's like, uh, you know, he is screaming, and oh, well, that's it for my quiet time. So, no, I'll wait till I get here and I can't hear him anymore. <laughs> so my point is that you can evolve and move things around and still have a way of beginning your morning with God, 
Um, depending on your season and stage of life, maybe that's 10 minutes, maybe it's an hour. You have to go with what you have and, and trust God in that season. Your approach doesn't have to look anything like mine. It doesn't have to be super involved if you're new to this thing altogether or if you're just getting back into it. Get up 10 minutes earlier than usual. 10 minutes. Any of you can do that. Find just a small window to be quiet and stop and say, Holy Spirit, come. What do you want to say to me today? What do you want to say through me today? But don't stop with the morning. The idea is to create rhythms to fill your mind and your heart with the things of God so that it permeates the way that you understand the world. My watch beeps every day at 2 p.m. I stand up from what I'm doing and take a short walk if I can, or I sit down somewhere, take a deep breath, and once again, Holy Spirit, come, speak to me. And then I wait and listen, and if, even if just only for a few minutes. And then there's other rhythms that I take up. Once a month, I fast or I spend a day in silence and solitude and prayer and worship. And what I found is that these times, even an entire day of silence and solitude, they're not always necessarily like profound spiritual experiences or earth-shattering moments where God parts the clouds and speaks. But the more that I embrace these rhythms, even when they're not earth-shattering, the more that I feel myself stretching comfortably into the spaces between those moments. What I mean is that I find my mind drifting to prayer rather than away from prayer throughout my day because I am becoming more aware of God's presence the more I fill my mind with God's presence. In my experience, this withness that Jesus promised is readily available readily available. You can tap into it anywhere at any time on a moment's notice, but it is not coerced. That's not how God works. And it doesn't take a monastery or 40 days of fasting to find the presence of God. It's here. It's now. It's in you. You don't need a mountain or a temple. That same powerful sacred presence is in your kitchen while you wash dishes is on your couch in the morning as the sun rises. It's on the sidewalk down Main Street. It's between the pages of your favorite novel. It's on your commute. It's in a conversation over dinner. We have access to the empowering presence of God himself in us. So what if you don't feel as if that's true right now or tonight? What if you don't feel like it's true that God is with you? With respect, I would invite you to ask yourself, as I ask myself, in what ways am I with him? God is not mean-spirited or withholding, but he isn't coercive either. That's why one of Jesus' earliest disciples wrote, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In what ways are you drawing near? What needs to change so that you can draw nearer? So often, we are like people who have never lifted weights in our lives and stare in a mirror disappointed that we do not have the physique of a bodybuilder. And then we eat garbage and we're listless and lazy and then disappointed and confused, mad at the muscles that we don't have you know, springing to life on their own voluntary accord. This is how we approach spiritual formation. Why isn't God suddenly zapping in me into an experience of his nearness? But I don't feel motivated to change, we often say. I don't, in and of myself, want 
to change. I feel doubtful or listless or despairing. But almost no one feels motivated to change all the time. But try this. For a spell even, narrow and silence all the voices vying for your attention over and against God. And for a season, for a spell, seek instead His Spirit, even if you don't feel like it. I have a very good friend um, who just recently had this incredible experience where he was healed of a very long season of despair in, in a moment by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this guy, he has a really robust understanding of and theology of the arts, um, and he's someone that he and I have shared, you know, like conversations about music and film and everything. And he felt as if when he was healed and when he was coming back into a new perspective of God's faithfulness over his life, God asked him, hey, listen, don't listen to, don't watch anything that isn't about me for the next season of your life. And not because, oh, it's wrong and, you know, you can never watch movies. God is some kind of prude that doesn't know anything about art. He didn't believe that. He didn't think that was true at all. But he said, I just feel like he said, focus everything on him right now. And he watched as his life just radically changes, his perspective changed because he had spent so much time with the enemy in his mind, the venom of the enemy in his mind, that it was not enough to suddenly be healed and then go about his business life as usual. He needed to radically reorient his perspective. So my advice, my encouragement to you, if you feel as if God is aloof at a distance, make a radical change. Silence other voices, even if it's for a season, a spell, and even if you don't feel like it, sit in prayer anyway. Meditate on the Psalms anyway. Worship anyway. Be present to your church community anyway. Time rewires your imagination over time. Reinvents your soul and your desire of suffering or dark nights or doubt or despair. But only because I am working to fight and swaking life so that I am prepared for those things. So that I can, and I want to do that until God becomes the air that I breathe, until God becomes my pervasive, all-encompassing truth, until all other claims to the truth become flimsy superstitions, and the reality of Jesus is all in all. He is not wishful thinking. Secularism is. He is not a pipe dream, a myth, a figment of the naive imagination. This sad, spiritless, post-enlightenment world void of miracles and God is the pipe dream, is the myth, is the imagined world. He is the truth and the truth that sets us free. It will be with us and go with us and we will know he is pleased with us and he will distinguish us from all other people in the face of the earth because he will be with us as we are with him. God, if your presence does not go with us, don't even send us on from here. Let's pray and ask for more of the God's more of God's spirit and more of his presence in our lives. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.